This past July, a pregnant woman named Alicia Beltran, who was accused of endangering her fetus, although she had stopped using the painkillers to which she'd been addicted, and she had weaned herself off her anti-addiction medication, was forced by a court in Wisconsin to spend 78 days at a drug treatment center during her pregnancy. Beltran's case is part of an ongoing story about the misuse of medical information that targets women and pregnancy for political ends. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Alta Sharo, a professor of law and bioethics at the University of Wisconsin. Professor Sharo has written a perspective article on physicians, politics, the law, and women's bodies and rights. Professor Sharo, what was the response to the Beltran case on the part of the public, the medical community, and the legal community in Wisconsin? Well, the case occasioned wide notice, not just locally but nationally, actually made it to the front page of the New York Times. Locally, it was covered quite extensively by the press in the county where the events took place. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel also wrote about it. And it led to an announcement by uh, Chris Taylor, who is a member of our state assembly, that she plans to review the underlying law, and she's going to work toward trying to change it so that it actually better serves the interests of women and children. On the other hand, the Wisconsin Right to Life community has praised the law, calling it compassionate and expressing hope it would be a model for the rest of the country. In terms of the medical community, Dr. Cresta Jones, who's an obstetrician and fetal medicine specialist at Medical College of Wisconsin, she's somebody who sees many women with histories of drug or alcohol abuse, and her reaction was that this law, which has been used a number of times since 1998 when it was passed, that it has really sowed fear among these women. And she said that women are actually scared to come in if they have a dependency problem, and you really would get a much better outcome if they felt comfortable being honest. The law that was used against Ms. Beltran, which is only one of a number of state laws around the country that grant rights or personhood to fetuses, has been challenged as unconstitutional in a federal suit. What's happening with that case, and what do you think the chances are? Lynn Paltrow of the National Advocates for Pregnant Women and her colleagues and the students and faculty at the NYU Reproductive Justice Clinic, they all went to federal court to ask for Beltran's release from that residential facility where she was confined. The state reacted by releasing Beltran just days later and dropping its action against her. But by the time she was released, still pregnant, she was no longer employed. So she had lost time with her family as well as her job. Now, the federal case is still pending, although the state is arguing that it's moot because she's been released. The trouble is cases that concern pregnancy are likely to become moot if you dismiss them as soon as the pregnancy ends. The first issue is whether or not the federal courts will allow the case to proceed. If it does, and I think it really should, it raises a lot of very interesting claims under the U.S. and state constitutions. They range from unacceptable invasion of physical liberty, medical privacy and due process, and vagueness. In this particular case, we have a Wisconsin statute that talks about involuntarily committing women who habitually, that's the word that's used, habitually lack self-control, but nobody knows what that means. It's incredibly broad. It applies to fertilized eggs as well as fetuses, both before and after viability. So one of the problems is that no woman can actually know what it is she's allowed to do and not allowed to do without risk of being picked up and sent to a facility. It doesn't give any real standard for medical professionals who are asked to judge whether or not the risk to the fetus is severe. And it lacks basic kinds of due process protections like 
in this case where Alicia Beltran comes to a hearing, there's a lawyer who's been appointed to represent the interests of the fetus, but she's denied the opportunity to have a lawyer to help her represent her own interests. But even beyond all of these, I think the real problem with the statute and the one that I think is at the heart of the petition is that fundamentally it preferences the state's interest in a fetus over a woman's interest in her own physical liberty. And given that fetuses are not considered to be equal under the law to life-born persons, this is problematic. So I have high hopes that this case will proceed and that there will be an opinion that confirms that the statute is unconstitutional as written. In your article, you tie this case and this sort of law to broader efforts to use the courts to target women and pregnancy. What are some of the other strategies that are being used in that effort? There have long been efforts to use both statutes and judicial case decisions, basically to elevate the legal status of the fetus and try to make that legal status equal to that of a live-born child, to discourage abortion, even to discourage contraception, and certainly to punish women who fail to be model mothers. So, for example, we've now had examples for decades of women who've been forcibly detained and forced to have C-sections in the name of saving a child. It's interesting that this will happen to a pregnant woman in the name of saving a child that has not yet been born. But by contrast, if you have a father of a child who's desperately in need of a life-saving liver transplant, that father can't be forcibly tested for compatibility, let alone be forced into surgery for a mere liver snip to save his own child. So we've seen real differences in how we treat men and women, even when, in the case of the men, we're talking about already born children. But more generally, we've seen abortion isolated from insurance coverage, any form of public funding. We've seen abortion clinics targeted with laws designed to force them to close by requiring medically unnecessary physical improvements or hospital admitting privileges. Women have been subjected to mandatory counseling, even counseling by actual anti-abortion activists in so-called pregnancy crisis centers. Physicians have been forced by the legislatures to give women inaccurate information about the risks of abortion, specifically to scare women away from the procedure. And we're now seeing laws that prevent doctors from using the safest method for abortion, even when the abortion is allowed and is going to proceed. So we've seen them forced to perform medically unnecessary and contraindicated procedures like some ultrasounds to use the less safe dosages of medications for early abortion or to use the less safe procedure for late-term abortions that are occasionally needed. What's really quite amazing is that we're now seeing some of this begin to creep into the area of contraception, whether it's laws that allow pharmacies to refuse to fill a birth control prescription or now the cases all across the country challenging the requirement under the Affordable Care Act that employers permit their employees to have birth control coverage at no cost to the employer, but nonetheless challenged by the employers. The situation appears to vary from state to state and perhaps even internationally. Can you say something about the geographic or cultural variation in these laws? Well, sadly, from my perspective, we see this situation across the entire country. Wisconsin is one of four states, along with Minnesota, Oklahoma, and South Dakota, that has a law that specifically grants authorities the power to confine pregnant women for substance abuse. But there are many other states that use civil confinement, child protection, or other laws to force women into treatment programs or to punish them for taking drugs. Alabama has recently, its Supreme Court has recently upheld a child endangerment law that was used at least 100 times to bring women in after they were found to have a drug problem while pregnant. 
But it gets more complicated because in many cases, it's not civil but criminal laws that are being used, like various criminal child abuse laws. And South Carolina and Florida are examples where women were charged with delivering a controlled substance to a minor via, for example, the umbilical cord. So this way you don't have to deal with fetuses. It's that moment before the cord's been cut. But the decision to charge and prosecute in a criminal matter is really up to the discretion of the district attorney, who is a local official. Within a state, you can have huge variation from county to county, depending upon the political predilections of the local district attorney offices. And that makes it very hard to map what's happening across the country. In your article, you cite a study on arrests and forced interventions in pregnant women. And that study focuses on the period since 1973, the year that Roe v. Wade was decided. Have these sorts of actions against pregnant women been a new front that's emerged in the abortion struggle as it shifted after Roe v. Wade? I think the answer is yes. After Roe v. Wade, we begin to see a strategy nationally of trying to elevate the status of the fetus in every respect outside of abortion itself in order to isolate abortion as an anomaly and set the stage for Roe versus Wade to be overturned. So it's really since Roe that we see the strategy of forcing doctors to punish women by performing unnecessary procedures or by turning doctors into pregnancy police. If successful by the end, with laws that make it feticide if somebody attacks a pregnant woman and with laws that confine pregnant women for failing to optimize their pregnancies, it will seem quite peculiar that the fetus is protected in every respect except from actual termination by legal abortion. But I have to say, from my own perspective, it's also about, I think, the changing role of women. From the 1970s forward, we really saw a huge acceleration in equality in the workplace, in civil liberties, in household roles, in sexual mores. And with that, I think, has come a backlash and a growing tendency to view the women who exercise these kinds of freedoms in addition to their role as wives and mothers or even worse, in lieu of their role as wives and mothers, to view these women as somehow bad women who deserve to be constrained. So I I think it's a cultural as well as legal phenomenon. As you say, these laws encroach on physicians and on the doctor-patient relationship by mandating that physicians provide misinformation, that they perform unnecessary procedures, you mentioned ultrasonography, or that they use inappropriate and risky or abortion procedures How has organized medicine responded to these infringements, and what can physicians do? Well, the medical societies have begun to respond by making statements that decry, frankly, the invasion of the doctor-patient relationship and the imposition of these requirements, which are inconsistent with proper medical practice. They're inconsistent with any norm of medical ethics. So, for example, the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists They wrote an open letter to the Texas legislature in response to some developments there. They called on the lawmakers to stay out of the exam room. And there were already professional statements about not using certain medical technology for unnecessary procedures. So, for example, the American Institute of Ultrasound Medicine has a code that says ultrasound should not be used when medically unnecessary. So, for example, not be used when it's there solely to try to emotionally upset a woman and discourage her from choosing an abortion. And ironically, with regard to the Beltran case, the very drug that the social service officials and the police were telling Beltran she had to take, that anti-addiction medication, is one that is labeled by the FDA as not for use by pregnant women 
unless there's really a clear need for it, like an ongoing active addiction. But without that, it's not supposed to be used. And she did not have an ongoing addiction. So here's the irony of the officials now, not a law, but the officials telling her she'll be committed unless she uses a drug in a way that is contraindicated by the FDA. This is clearly about women's rights, but in what ways would you argue that it's also about women's health? I think you have to begin by understanding that most of these laws concerning uh, drug-addicted pregnant women are based on rather exaggerated perceptions of the risks to newborns. And that's not to say there are no risks. There are, but it does seem now that the risks have been exaggerated. In 2011, ACOG said that, quote, incarceration and threat of incarceration have proved to be ineffective in reducing the incidence of alcohol or drug abuse. They also said that mandating the testing and reporting will lead women to avoid prenatal care, which will in turn only increase the risks of harm to the resulting child from that pregnancy. And this is, of course, confirmed by the statement from the obstetrician at the Medical College of Wisconsin that she's seen women scared to come in or scared to be honest about their conditions. So given that the medical benefits of reporting are uncertain at best and that they can certainly deter women from getting any care at all, it's hard to imagine how it could be a benefit to women's health or even to children's health to scare women away from the very prenatal care that could help ensure a good birth outcome. Given the current political climate in the country, where do you see our legal and medical approaches to pregnancy heading? You know, I am a born optimist. <laughs> so I actually see the current wave of restrictive laws and the rather heated rhetoric we've been hearing. I see it as a kind of rising fever, and fevers break. This is all so completely inconsistent with the actual lived experience of women across all classes, all religious backgrounds. The data shows that so many women from every background have had pregnancy scares, difficult pregnancies, or abortions, and that the current pattern just seems unsustainable. In Texas, the laws are now so onerous. The clinics are so pressed to try to stay in operation that women are beginning to talk about going to Mexico for care. Now, regardless of how good or bad the facilities in Mexico might be, the first time a woman has some kind of tragic outcome from care she happened to receive down there, I think there's going to be an outcry that's heard across the country. But I do think it's heartbreaking that we'll need a tragedy to bring this about. Thank you, Professor Sharo.